Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm pastor and elder here at Resonate. I'm glad you're with us this morning. Um, I'll just dive right into our text today. I want us to imagine, once again, similar to last week, but maybe not quite as vividly, um, but I want to imagine, uh, once again, I mean, elderly, an old, old, grizzled man uh, has the view, the look of someone who has experienced a lot of life. Calloused hands, just eyes that you can clearly make out have seen the highs and lows of what the human experience entails. Um, perhaps an old general who has served in war after war. And right in the middle of this valley that is filled with temporary housing of a people who have been on the move, he calls them all to meet, perhaps one more time in his life. He sends for the leaders and all gather. And he breaks out into speech, sort of parting words of his life. And he reminds them. He reminds them of all the things that God had done in their story. To so remember, remember what God has done. Remember even back to Abraham, when God called a new people out from Babylon to come to this new land. And Abraham and Sarah start a new story in the history of the world of God's people. And it continues through someone like Isaac, and it continues through another called Jacob and his wife and the many children that they end up having. It leads to a people, a nation, an ethnic group, actually, in the Hebrew. But eventually that family continued to grow and grow and grow in a place called Egypt. And Egypt eventually would oppress them, drag them into slavery, cause all sorts of harm to this family, and eventually they cry to the God who originally called Abraham out. And this God showed up, delivered his people, brought them out of Egypt, brought them out from under slavery, and told them, look, there is a land waiting on you. Come, follow me. And then they eventually get there. The first person who lead them there was Moses, but he never quite made it to the land. And then came this man, Joshua. And through a series of many battles, most of them with crazy supernatural stories related to them, not always by the sword, but just trusting in their God, they had victory after victory after victory. And they would eventually settle in this land, this nomadic group And Joshua is here giving his final words to these people. He reminds them of all these things, and then he tells them. Joshua 24, starting at verse 15. His parting words. They're pretty famous. My wife actually sang me a lovely little song about it last night that she learned. When you learn how to memorize scripture through song, which we're often missing out in our lives, but your kids probably know some of it. Joshua 24, verse 15, choose this day 
whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers, uh, whether the gods your fathers served in the regions beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And he would continue to speak, and there would be a sort of call and response moment between him and Israel saying, this is what we're, we're charged to do, Israel. We are called to faithfully worship Yahweh and Yahweh alone. And in Israel's common way, they said, yeah, we'll do all that. They've made those mistakes before, but they will once again say, yes, we will do that. At just as you say, Joshua. And then eventually we hear that Joshua dies. Soon after this. In verse 29, it says, after these things, the son of Nun... Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance in Timnath-Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. Israel served the Lord in all the days of Joshua, in all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. So this is the end of his life, the sort of eulogy moment for Joshua. Stephen Covey um, wrote a pretty famous book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And one of the practices he tells people to kind of walk through is to imagine their own funeral. Imagine yourself at your own funeral, being there, listening, sort of like sneaking in the back and, and listening. What, what would people say? In some ways, it's a, it's a morbid but pretty effective practice. It starts zeroing you in on what's important, hoping that people probably speak towards your character, maybe achievements. All of a sudden, it just puts things into perspective and, and puts you right now in this time frame to go, okay, what am I doing now? In a way that might affect what people will say about me. Hopefully I'm not at my funeral and someone pulls up the screen time function on my phone. Chris spent an average of this many hours on his phone. How, or maybe set the record of how quickly I can binge watch a show on Netflix or learning 20 TikTok dances. Whatever it may be, the things that might be completely silly to ever want at your funeral. And it starts setting some crystal clarity of what we want people to say about you. And in Joshua, we get a very rare ray of life in the Old Testament. I mean, much of the stories, time after time again, is just of people messing up over and over. I mean, even some of the greatest heroes, like David, are messing up over and over and over. And we get very rare stories about someone like Joshua. Maybe Samuel, a few others, Jonathan. But it's rare. And we get this moment of God breaking through, yes, to Joshua, but even to all of Israel. I mean, look at what was said. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. So when Joshua was leading Israel, Israel was faithfully serving the Lord and even the elders that Joshua had appointed and maybe led and influenced continue that work at least for a short generation. So what is unique about Joshua? 
I mean, I always want to caution making anybody but Jesus the hero of the story. And I don't want to do that even today. I think if we look at the life of Joshua, as I already mentioned, we see sort of God getting victory after victory after victory, not necessarily Joshua always just putting might and strength into all of the victories. But yet there's something unique about this character, about his faithfulness in Israel's history. What shaped him? What brought about this maturity in his life? Well, we get a bit of a unique flashback about Joshua. Before he's really even emerged on the scene as a leader, we don't know a lot about this young man at one of these flashback moments. We knew he helped previously in one of the battles before they ended up at Sinai, but other than that, we know nothing about his character. We know nothing about sort of how he lives his life. And we get this flashback moment. Even before Moses has led the people to the promised land, or at least on the edge of it, we get this moment. One that feels like this information sort of just dropped into the narrative a bit out of time. A sort of telling, once again, of Moses did this, and then Moses did this, and then Moses talked to God at Sinai, and then Moses did this, and then suddenly it was like, oh yeah, Moses also used to do this thing all the time. And Joshua was thrown into the story as well. It's like a window that seems into a common occurrence in Moses' life. So I want to jump there to Exodus 33. And the words will be on the screen, but I always encourage people to follow along in their phones or paper. Exodus 33, verse 7. So we're smack dab in the middle of the story of Moses interacting with God at the mountain. He's already had the golden calf experience. He's going back up the mountain. He's reconfirming that God has not given up on his people. And then we suddenly get this story kind of thrown in, verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. Now, let's be clear. This is not the tabernacle. So eventually God gives a bunch of instructions on a certain tent that the Israelites are supposed to build, Uh, this this tent where God will meet with his people, the the sort of um, way that God was going to sort of dwell amongst all of Israel. Now that tent was always called to be right smack dab in the middle of the encampment. They were instructed to camp all around it. And, And let me be clear, Moses could not just carry the tabernacle anywhere he wanted to go. So this is a something different called the tent of meeting. Moses called it that himself, and he sets it far off from the camp, this place where Moses somehow would meet with God. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And we get the sense that there's really no public announcement for Moses here. There's no shofar being blown. There's no uh, uh, um, public service announcement that's sent out to do the camp. It's as if Moses would just grab this tent when he was felt called or decided to meet with Yahweh and walk to the outskirts of town and set it up. Now, you've got to imagine people would start seeing Moses go by. It wouldn't be a public announcement, but there would start to be murmuring he doing? Where's he going? Oh, he's got the tent. 
It's not a showy broadcast kind of influence that Moses is enacting here. It's quiet, yet almost powerful, like a low rumble of an earthquake. Sense that something's movie. It's not flashy or showy, but something is happening. Moses is going to talk to Yahweh. Verse 9, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. Now this they knew, the cloud. This cloud had started in the story of how they even got out of Egypt. Eventually, the God would lead them through a cloud of smoke and fire. He would give them direction. He would uh, uh, send them of where they would go, and, and they would lead them through this crazy desert, rocky sort of desert wilderness that, that, that they would lead, uh, that they would go through. This cloud that comes eventually on the tabernacle. When the tabernacle gets finished, this cloud would be this representation that God is here. God has shown up. It's almost like you're driving down the road and you see a house with smoke coming out of the, the chimney. Well, you can pretty be safe that somebody's home. And it functions a bit that way. It is clear that God's presence is there. This cloud that sort of represents God's glory is descending in this moment. And when all the people saw the pillar of clouds standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now this, if you are reading chronologically in history, is a mind-blowing concept. I think we function very um, New Testament, New Covenant, post-Jesus uh, kind of view of things. Jesus is my friend. I can speak to him whenever I want. We, we can pray and talk to, to, to the God of the universe whenever we desire to pray and talk to him. There's a closeness that we have that we can speak and understand. But in the ancient world, this was so far-fetched and unheard of. Like a human's ability to sit down with a God, let alone the God, was unknown. It just doesn't happen. The gods were capricious. They're always fighting. Uh, they're, they're busy with the affairs of, of floods and famines and everything else. They would not condescend to meet with someone face to face like a, like a friend. But the language here is intimate and close. It's like the word yada. It's this word to know in Hebrew. It's the intimacy of a, of a married couple. God is knowing Moses, and Moses is knowing his God. The one who created all the universe, who dots the constellations, is sitting with an unclean mortal human. And it should be a mind blow sort of moment. And when Moses turned again into the camp, so he's returning back, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, just to remind you that this guy has not accomplished much yet, would depart, would not depart from the tent. So Moses goes. Moses sets up this tent. He meets God face to face. There's the pillar of smoke that it seems like everyone from the, from the camp uh, could see, even far away. They probably saw the smoke on the horizon and be like, oh, yes, Moses is meeting with Yahweh, and Yahweh has come to speak to his people. And they would worship, and there would be chants, and there'd be all this kind of stuff. And then Moses would eventually pack up um, and, and head back into camp in some ways. And maybe he'd leave the tent behind. 
and Joshua would stay. Joshua, this, this old man who we just saw die, goes the way of all the earth, as Joshua would say. It's elderly, he has run the race, he has finished well. All of Israel was, seemed to be generally obedient under his leadership. He has appointed other leaders. Where does the spiritual life come from? I think this little image into the early life of Joshua gives us a lot. These hidden foundations that no one can really see much of. As Moses is meeting with God, communing with God, finding direction that God wants for his people, we get this little vignette, this little moment where we find out Joshua's found there too. Dwelling, soaking in God's presence, being in the outskirts of town and basically like a hidden place, meeting with God. I would argue this footnote is not an accident. It can feel like an unnecessarily detail, but it also helps show us a life of flourishing, a life that um, helps to show us what a life of flourishing can be built upon. That public victories are preceded by private victories. And personal change leads to corporate change. Before you can win the world, God wants you to win the battle with you. In the age we live in, we often get this very flipped upside down. We often like to win the battle of the exterior. It's what, it's what we desire. We live in an age of image. Perfect versions of ourselves, certain number of likes, certain number of amount of respectability, whatever it may be. And it's built on a foundation that just doesn't exist. It's sand. Versus the foundation of building on dwelling in the presence of God. That's what we get from a young, young Joshua. It's the picture that we get right from the garden, right? Adam and Eve fall when they finally hear the whisper of the serpent with the dangerous question of, what if you can be like God's? It's a little question, seemingly innocuous, yet it sort of destroys God's creation. Not totally defeats it, but at least destroys it. And in Adam and Eve, we swap God's presence Right? The picture of the garden is amazing. We, we get the sort of um, human anthropomorphized language around God as if he's strolling through the garden, just taking a walk. Adam and Eve are like, who's that over there? Well, it's God. He's smelling the flowers that he created. And, and this garden was a temple. It was a place where God would dwell. His dwelling place on earth with his people was here. There was no need for a temple structure or building at all. This is, that's the whole point. The whole world was the temple. That was the setup from the beginning. And the instructions to Adam and Eve, sort of this first sense of priests who were to tend to keep the garden, was also to, be, to go forth and to multiply, to have kids to have more people spread on this earth to teach them uh, all that God is and to fill this whole world with God's image so that his glory would cover from end to end. That's the picture. That's the story. That's why you find moments all over the Old Testament where there's sort of language around the, the, the eventuality of God's glory filling the earth. That was always the, the call of God's people. Habakkuk, Isaiah, Psalms, Numbers, it's all over. 
And how will God accomplish his plan? Through, through people. God, not, not to use a negative connotation because he does this negatively, but, but God can snap his finger and like, just do whatever he wants. He, he's Thanos, just good Thanos, right? He, he can do that. And, and, and he could easily in Genesis 1 go, all right, I'm going to fill the whole earth. There's just going to be people everywhere. They're all going to be obedient and we're done. But that's not what he does. And, and he could do the same thing even after the resurrection. Maybe after Jesus has come out of the grave, he snaps his finger, we figure it out, everybody sort of accepts, and we move forward with a new creation. But he partners with people. Now remember, the, the centerpiece of God's plan, yes, is still the cross. We want to be so clear and emphasize that as well. God's plan to bless the nations God's plan to reconcile all things to himself. God's plan to redeem his people. It happens through Jesus' work on the cross. His death is a passageway to life back with God, to bring the dead to life, to make the fatherless have fathers, to make those who belong to the kingdom of the enemy to citizens in the kingdom of God. Absolutely. By faith, that is the story in the centerpiece. But God still invites his people into the work he's doing. That's why Jesus will tell them, greater things will happen through the Spirit coming on you all, going out and doing this work. God believes in partnerships. Hear me. And if you just quote me out of context and put it on there, it's going to sound totally out of place. But God believes in you more than you do. Now, he doesn't believe in you in a false sort of sense of self and pride and hubris and, and your achievements. That's a different sort of believing in yourself. But this is a believing in what God has actually called you to do. God believes he can accomplish his work through each of you. Just as God called Adam and Eve to a life of dwelling in his presence, but they swap it for dwelling, um, for the temptation to be like God's, and swaps the presence of God for a presence of of self. That's what they sort of start building. They try to replicate everything they had, all the, all the great things of what it looks like to be human under the presence of God. They have now tried to rebuild and have spent lifetimes rebuilding what that actually looks like under their own and under our own steam. And we do it through technology and freedom and education, achievement, purpose, happiness. We have all of our ways. There's a terrible late 80s movie with John Travolta, which is a good start, called The Experts. I assume none of you have seen it, so I will ruin this movie and it won't matter at all. And the premise is, uh, this is during um, basically a Cold War comedy, because those existed. And they're in Russia, and there's towns, and these actually existed historically, they have evidence of this. There's Russian towns that were actually made to be American towns. They would build these American-style towns so that they could train the KGB to interact with American culture and to experience Americana before they sent them over to the States. If you watch shows about Russian spies, it's common. And in this comedy, um, with Travolta, this town that had started when they first started training spies never progressed. And so in the 80s, it's still this sort of like 1950s, leave it to beaver, kind of wholesome, almost like Pleasantville, if you've seen that movie, that sort of picture of Americana. These KGB agents weren't being equipped for like 1980s, late 80s America. 
And so they kidnap Travolta and uh, his partner, drug them. They wake up in this American town in Russia, thinking they're still in America. And um, this, this guy who's in charge, who kind of um, brings them over, explains to them that, hey, we're, we're in, the, in the countryside kind of in America. Um, this town's not cool or hip. Um, and John Travolta and his partner ran a club in New York City. You can see why no one liked this movie. Um, <laughs> John Travolta and his partner ran this nightclub in New York City, and um, they're like, hey, can you make this town cooler? Can you bring some life uh, to this city? Now, the nightclub didn't go well at first, so they start their own little nightclub in this little Leave it to Beaver town, and the fake sort of 1950s Russian agents don't really uh, get into it. They're not cool. They're super nerdy and kind of out of touch time-wise to 1980s dance clubs. And the guy behind the whole thing starts getting really frustrated. So he sends in these sort of like seductress KGB agents. Um, Kelly Preston's one of them. That's actually where him and her and Travolta met. Hollywood facts, in case you want to know. Because it comes up in trivia night. Um, and she comes in. And everyone's dancing kind of square and kind of nerdy. And she comes in with like, the best way to describe it is like 1980s seductress dancing. If that's a thing. 1980s sexy dance. And it becomes this, like, breakthrough moment in the storyline. Like, the purity and innocence of the 1950s crowd starts breaking down in this moment. And suddenly, like, their eyes can sort of see what late 80s uh, Americana is like with sexy Travolta and Preston. And they start nudging each other, the, the, the people watching and winking. And it's like 30 years of the sexual revolution all get solved in a dance in the storyline. Now, the town still isn't totally moving along, and so uh, they realize they need some more, and what they offer is consumerism. They say, hey, um, now that we've got the dance club solved, let's, let's bring a bunch of stuff into town. Record players and radios and TVs and roller skates and headphones, new clothes, all the things. And suddenly everyone's like up to date and dressing kind of cool, riding around their roller skates, and they've got... Uh, speakers on their shoulders like you had in the 80s and stuff like that. Um, and the town is completely transformed. Consumerism, sexual freedom, all this kind of stuff. And, and, they, and, and then the town's completely changed, and then suddenly, like, Travolta and company somehow escape, and they end up in America again. The end. Once again. You can understand. I, I have no problem ruining this movie for you. But the dominant narrative of the movie, sort of the gospel, the, the good news of that story that we have heard for decades is played out. You know what we need? We just need more freedom and we need more stuff and everything will be solved. That'll bring human flourishing to its conclusion. That'll make us happy. But yeah, we are living, not 1980s, but 2022. And we've seen how this experiment has gone. It's so interesting to read about um, the internet in, in the 1990s. Like some of the things that it was supposed to do, that it, everybody would work way less. We'd be working like a quarter of what we worked in the 1990s. And that has not happened. It was supposed to bring down like every totalitarian regime, it's supposed to bring the world into this sort of kumbaya utopia where we all communicate so much better and we all get along. That's, that, that was the thought. Freedom of information will just do all of that. 
And we live in a day where we also have more stuff than we've ever had in history. Like the idea that we can order something and within 48 hours, basically it shows up on our doorstep. Like, unheard of for anybody in the 1990s. You had to like catalog. Like I remember as a kid, like I, I had to pick out Christmas presents through a catalog. Like you just circled, here's the thing I want. And maybe it shows up, maybe it doesn't, I don't know. It's a very different world. And this experiment may not be working. We are more unhappy, more anxious, higher rates of things like suicide. Just about every metric of actual like human flourishing health is not good. And the canary is dead in the coal mine, and yet we keep ignoring it and steamrolling forward with sort of this great you-do-you experiment. In a story that we've been told that we can kind of create our own godlike presence, that we can figure out in and of ourselves how to be happy, it is failing in real time. And we aren't living 100 years ago. We are living right now, in this moment. People 100 years ago had to solve the gospel problems themselves. We've got to solve this one. And we live in this axial point in history. And there's tremendous pressure, I would argue, on the church in the midst of this. But I would also argue that pressure is really put on the half-committed, nominal versions of Christianity. Like, what if this season, where all of this is starting to crack, like the cracks in secularism are showing, the cracks in a whole lot of things are showing, what if this is a good season? Leslie Newbegin, who's a missiologist in the 1960s, but is still, like, wrote about what's happening now in the 1960s. He says secularism would come, and it's going to tear down some of our structures. But he would argue that it would leave the authority left still standing to God. The secularism would push so much against itself that people would stop believing in everything. They would be so cynical towards all structures, all power structures, and they would all end up being destroyed. And I think we're kind of there. Silicon Valley is being exposed. Politics is being exposed. Hollywood's being exposed. Big business is being exposed. Even the mythology of our own nation is being exposed. And those are all really good things. And we're in this moment where it's perhaps not pressure on the church, but an opportunity for us to stand like Joshua and be like, all right, I'm going I'm to meet with God. And when there's moments to stand there and say, this way or that way, and one of the ways is the way of Yahweh and flourishing and the other one's not, for me and my house, that's what we're doing. And this crisis that God, I would argue, has allowed to create nationwide. And I would argue if you look, you'll find Christ in the crisis. It's common. And the question is, are you going to follow the ways of the world that keeps giving unhappiness, lack of joy, lack of satisfaction, lack of purpose, lack of contentment? Or are you going to relook at your life and pursue something new? Maybe you're like, I am anxious, and I am struggling with what is my purpose, and I, I, I keep pursuing these things, and I'm sick of the broken system I'm living out of. I am experiencing anxiety, frustration, isolation, all the things. I want all this stuff, and I desire it, and I pursue, but the horizon keeps moving further and further away from me. And what if God has brought you to a moment of disillusionment 
this morning. And hear me, maybe the problem is really not you. What if you're even beating yourself up in this process? And now is actually a moment to stop beating yourself up, to stop trying to achieve it all, to stop trying to run for, for that horizon that keeps moving, to, to live into the life script of the culture that keeps pushing and pushing and pushing. And maybe it's a time to stop it all and fall into the arms of God, to finally do a new thing, to stand up and say, I'm not going to pursue that. I'm not going to go that way. And what if in the giving up of yourself, you find God and find yourself in the process and surrender a need to be godlike and to get a different kind of godly influence in your life, the one that we see at the end of Joshua's life. And perhaps that's you today. Maybe I get a sense the Holy Spirit is that for some of you today. But this morning, God is asking you to make a life change, a significant life change. And maybe you're like Joshua, where it's like, I don't have a lot of influence. Maybe you're the early days of Joshua. I don't know. I don't have a lot of influence. I'm still kind of figuring my life out. I don't know these things. Great. May we be like Joshua, set on our knees at the tent, praying seeking God, not knowing what trajectory of life is going to have, but willing to wait on God and do whatever God's going to do. He didn't have leadership at that point. He didn't have influence at that point. He was just willing to be in the presence of God. Enough that we get recorded this random moment in history that Joshua stayed at the tent. Perhaps that's you today. But maybe you do have some influence, some leadership, whatever it may be. But you've also been walking that line between one camp of the world and one camp of Christianity. And, and hear me, I think it's a lie that the church says that Christians can be sort of super relevant. I think we tried that experiment, I think, in the early 2000s, you know, have church gatherings, we play some secular songs, light some candles, and preach a sort of pseudo-relevant message, and it'd be cool. And every, like, famous Christian band that showed up and crossed over to secularism would be like, yeah, they did. And, and so I think some of that's just, we've, we've tried that, and I think we were found wanting. Remember, Jesus told his disciples, like, you guys are going to kind of be the scum of the earth. People are going to treat you differently. You're not going to totally fit in. Embrace it. And people should see something different about you. And what should speak to the world is the Holy Spirit working through you and people see something different in you, perhaps supernatural. And you might be in a community, you might be whatever club, workplace, neighborhood, whatever you may be as a student, and you stand out a little bit. And the people who are hungry, the good soil, the meek, the poor, those that might be hungering for God and don't even know him yet, see that, and they'll say, I want that. And maybe the other seven people in the room think you're a weirdo. But that's kind of what we're called to be. And Joshua stood there saying, look, I, I know how all the other nations, I know how all the people groups, I know how all this goes. I know, I know what the cultures all around us are like. But me and my house, we're, we're going to be different. We're going to serve the Lord. 
We're not going to have the idols like everybody else in our household. We're not going to do these things. And, and that's okay. Because he's had a whole lifetime meeting, dwelling with the God of the universe. So may those, may we reverse engineer who we want to be and know the steps to take to be that faithful, mature follower that Joshua becomes. The steps now are being, meeting with, spending time in prayer, spending time in the word, just once again, just staying at that tent until God finally gives us more and more of a platform if that's his trajectory for you. Let me pray for us and we'll move into communion. God, I am thankful for your word. I'm thankful for incredible stories like someone like Joshua. Stories you tell through your people, the way you work. Even one who is basically a military leader, yet the first story you tell in the promised land is not of military conquest. To make sure that we remind ourselves that it's all about you. But God, may we also look at the clues, the moments in Joshua's life to see that faithfulness to you, pursuing you, even in the hidden places, maybe even especially in the hidden places, grow and mature who we are so that we can become men and women who are faithful to the end who finish the race, who stand there at 100 plus years old and say, for me and my house, this is what we're choosing. God, I hope everyone in this room desires to finish the race, faithful to the end. But help us to utilize the tools that you've given us, ways that we can meet with you. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Uh, we do communion here weekly uh, to make sure we draw our eyes back. If for any reason we've pulled them away, draw our eyes back to the cross, knowing that, yes, God used people, but ultimately the centerpiece of God's work in history was through sending his own son to live a perfect life, even greater than Joshua's, even greater than Samuel's, even greater than Moses, David, Abraham, Ruth, other, I mean, all of it. And obedient in all the ways that we as descendants of Adam couldn't be. And in that perfect life, he obeyed and satisfied all that God wanted him to. All the demands of what it looks like to be true, whole human. And yet he died. But in that death, he was accomplishing something so much greater. In that death, he was satisfying the wrath, the response, the right response to brokenness and sin. So that through this amazing exchange, we can say, you know what, I believe what Jesus accomplished. 
And God starts rebuilding this world through people simply by faith. Puts a spirit in his people. And now the work of blessing all nations can be continued in even greater ways than ever was accomplished through Israel, in even greater ways than ever would be accomplished with Jesus singularly in one body walking this earth. God's Holy Spirit is now moving all across this globe in every nation as God seeks to bless the world and to reconcile all things to himself. And so when we come to communion, we remember that transition point in history. It's great to talk about the faithfulness of Joshua. It's even greater to talk about the faithfulness of Jesus.